0: Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Micah Richards of CBS Sports UEFA Champions League Studio. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Jurgen Klopp, Guillaume Baligay, Pablo Maurer, and many, many others. So check those interviews out. If you're interested, it would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. We'll have Micah Richards on soon, but let's start with some talk about the soccer news with my friend Chris Whittingham, who co-hosts the Chelsea Mic'd Up podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you?
1: Doing good, and I'm happy to have the best laugh in all of football punditry. Micah Richards on the program. He showed up on our (laughs) Zoom and just let out one of those guttural laughs. It's like, it made me so happy. He he makes me happy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, me too. Really fun interview with him. I, I learned about him a little more than I already knew. He told some good Mario Balotelli stories, so you have that to look forward to, everyone, in addition to his laugh. We also have plenty to talk about. UEFA Champions League final is set. Bayern Munich will face PSG on Sunday. On Wednesday, Bayern 3, Lyon nil. A little bit closer, at least early on, than the score would indicate. A game in many ways defined in the first half by Lyon's misses, missed opportunities, and then Serge Gnabry getting two goals, not missing, and Bayern Munich pulling away in this one, what stood out to you?
1: Well, I think that aspect of the game is massive, just because Bayern are now, for me, kind of becoming what Barcelona were about a decade ago, where in every pre-match build-up, it was, well, if you can get at Piquet and Puyol, if you can just get at that defense, then you have a chance. And then, once you're there, you have to take... Any chance that you get, otherwise you're going to get punished down the other end, and I think that dynamic now exists for Bayern Munich, where Memphis Depay rounds the keeper, puts in the side netting. A minute later, Serge Gnabry, kind of out of nothing, cuts it onto his left and fires one into the top corner. Bayern have so much margin for error, and the way that they play allows their opponents such little margin for error, so... You do kind of wonder heading into this PSG game, are PSG going to be clinical and are they going to cause Bayern even more problems than other teams have? At times, Jerome Bulletang has looked pretty slow for me, but Bayern look there for the taking, but they're so ruthless in front of goal that it's hard to not give up three goals to them.
0: Yeah, I mean, they have won going away in the last two games, 8-2 against Barcelona, 3-0 against Lyon, despite having moments where this really high line that they play has been vulnerable. And you mentioned Memphis Depay having an opportunity earlier in this game to score, not doing it. Ekandi doing the same with a chance later on. And if you're going to have a chance against Bayern Munich, you can't waste those opportunities. Now, what I would say is if they continue Bayern Munich to play this high line, that PSG has the speed and the finishing ability to take better advantage of it than Lyon did or Barcelona did.
1: I did see Charlie Stilitano tweet, if these chances come to PSG. They will be scored, and my counter was: we've seen Neymar miss a lot of chances (laughs) in these last couple of games here in this Champions League knockout tournament. But and Mbappe can miss a few as well. We've seen that at times in the French league, where I just feel like he could score sixty goals a season if he wanted to. But there are times where he can be wasteful. I just, it's it's an understandable take, just because PSG on paper have so much more talent than Lyon do that they should be able to. But we've kind of said that at every step of the way. And Barca had their chances. Lyon tonight had their chances. I think Bayern will give up chances. We also have to consider that Manuel Neuer has been sensational in terms of saving some of those opportunities that come his way. But also, no team has really made them pay. And again, to me, no one has the answer for, well, how are you going to stop Bayern from scoring three goals? They showed on the CBS All-Access pregame, their goals per game average is by far the best in the history of the Champions League. How are you stopping Bayern Munich? I just don't know what that answer is. And especially when PSG are not exactly incredible in central midfield they're not incredible in defense that's not where their the the strength of their talent is it's up front and so I just don't know how you're stopping Bayern Munich
0: yeah I I think Bayern Munich should be a heavy favorite or it's fairly significant favorite against PSG not as much as you know a favorite as they were against Lyon but I think if Bayern plays to their possibilities they will win this game but I am curious to see if PSG can find a way through especially early on when Bayern has looked vulnerable in the last couple of games I do want to give a shout out to Manuel Neuer who I thought even though people will talk a lot about these Lyon misses in this game I thought Neuer on a couple of those misses did the right things that a goalkeeper should do to help cause those misses to take place I think Neuer still has it in fact, I think he's in better form now than he was at the World Cup two years ago coming off his injury, and he's not done yet. I still think he's able to play at a high level and, and, and win Champions Leagues.
1: And you wrote about him in your book, but he's pioneered the position. I mean, this is someone yeah. who—he still has this sweeper-keeper, like, as high as— by Munich plan, I heard Archie Rintut on the on the Guardian pod is a Bundesliga expert. Kind of mentioned that the gap in between how far up the field Neuer is playing and how quickly Alfonso Davies can cover back doesn't really offer you that much room. Now, we have seen, there's a moment in the in this game today that led to that early chance where Memphis rounded the keeper that it was a great ball in behind and it was kind of precisely on the ground in that channel in between the center backs that allows Memphis in on goal. But it kind of requires that level of precision. As much as, in theory, there's so much space between the high line of Bayern and the goalkeeper, Neuer comes out, Alphonso Davies can track back better than anyone in the world. There isn't really that much room there, particularly for a long ball over the top. And if the opposition are in deep, there's going to need to be time to those players to break out. So I don't think it's as easy as it sounds with even Bayern play on the halfway line, basically.
0: I also think, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, that this was the game where Rudy Garcia got bit in the rear for not starting Musa Dembele. Because I think Musa Dembele was the best player that Leon had to take advantage of opportunities created by the High Line to get behind it. To finish and you don't leave that sitting on the bench when you know that Bayern can put this game away in the first half themselves
1: it's a good point, and I think ultimately Rudy Garcia has opted for this three five two and basically stuck with what got him there. I do think the the counter to that would be how the the, ch- the quality of chances that Leon had in the first twenty minutes I think in, in some respects their game plan worked they looked right up for it I thought up until the Canabri goal Leon with a better team yep. and and they had kind of a, a control of the game that I wasn't expecting and O.R. in midfield was immense and I kind of understand that in, in that need for defensive solidity you kind of need to play out of a back five and you just don't have room up top for Toko Akambi and for Memphis and for Musa Dembele maybe you take Toko Akambi off but Toko Akambi yeah, got into good, some good he got into some good areas as well so I, it's not, I don't think he was bad but you're right I think Dembele in terms of being prolific and taking one of those one or two chances you're going to get early against Bayern would probably have been the better option.
0: So, looking forward to the game on on Sunday. You got a team you're picking?
1: I'm going to go for Bayern Munich, just because I think, again, team versus individuals, Bayern has shown no signs to me of not being the strongest team. Even though they put three past Leon. it could have been five or six. Lewandowski was actually incredibly wasteful in front of goal (laughs) up until he scored again every Champions League game that Bayern have played in this campaign he scored in the commentators were quick to point out that it's been 55 goals this season for for Robert Lewandowski a player who I was actually I was I thought of this Taylor Twelman back in April of last year which feels like a lifetime ago was talking about Robert Lewandowski moving to MLS that maybe he was reaching the twilight of his career hmm. and that Bayern you know wouldn't necessarily want to extend his contract now You basically let Lewandowski play out until whatever he wants. He probably would have won the Ballon d'Or had there been an award this year. But I actually think that Bayern could have scored more in the match if not for uh, his wastefulness and the wastefulness of some others. I just think they're too strong. They're going to create too many chances. And I think PSG are kind of vulnerable. And I don't think any team so far in the competition has really picked them apart. Like, I think they're capable of being picked apart.
0: I think we're going to see goals in this game, though. I think Bayern's going to win it. But I think both defenses are open to concede goals. And I just think Bayern has too much firepower. It's like just really incredible right now. A guy like Serge Gnabry, like he has gone from being viewed basically as a career washout to to being one of the most feared attackers in the world, literally. Mm-hmm. And yeah, d- d-
1: doesn't get nearly enough credit. And one of the things that Roberto Martinez did a great job pointing up in the pre-match was how that front four worked together. And as a matter of fact, it was kind of obvious to the eye once Coman and Coutinho and Tolisso and the other attackers came on how much they didn't really fit in that front four of Lewandowski, Müller, Perisic, and Gnabry. They work so well off each other. It's not, I mean, any individual is sensational in that group of four, but they work so well in combination. And Martinez did a great job of kind of illustrating the way that their movements synchronize with each other. They're like a jazz band. It's incredible how much, They've built this kind of attacking, and we have to remember that Hansi Flick was meant to be an interim manager and took over in January, which generally is not a time that you build out these beautiful attacking patterns, and he's done it so quickly, and they're just incredible to watch.
0: I am so excited to have an elite coach on American television doing real tactics like Roberto Martinez. It's so much fun. So let's move on. Uh, U.S. men's national team got its World Cup qualifying schedule in the draw on Wednesday. For some reason, this took place in Zurich as opposed to anywhere in CONCACAF, which is based in Miami. But that said, at least we know now uh, what it's going to look like for the U.S. And it's not the Hex. It's the Ocho, Octagon, whatever you want to call it. It's going to start with four games in June of next summer. And it's going to go through March of 2022. And it looks more like the marathon South American world cup qualifying tournament that it maybe does to the old hex 14 games are going to be part of this process, not uh, 10 like we used to have before. And I guess the things that stand out, at least to me are always USA, Mexico world cup qualifiers. The home one is going to be October, 2021 then at Mexico, in January of 2022, there's always the question, where do you play the game in the U.S. against Mexico? Where do you play the other World Cup qualifiers in the U.S.? And I tweeted this. I, per- I personally would like to see Minnesota or Kansas City get the home game against Mexico. I don't think Columbus has the mystique anymore. Not when you lose uh, in that situation. <laughs> But I'd be curious to hear your thoughts.
1: Well, I would say in defense of Columbus, they're moving into a new stadium, which will hopefully be ready around the time that this game is played in October of 2021. To me, when looking at the schedule, I think the very obvious thing is is that I think the U.S. I don't want to say can lock up qualifying, but can go a long way towards locking locking up qualifying early in their schedule. This June 2021 window is going to be huge because you're play you're you're facing two playoff winners which we can kind of go through the groups of the first stage of, of World Cup qualifying. Then you're at Honduras and home with Jamaica. That's probably eight, nine points, maybe even ten if you're looking at a U.S. kind of going into that in good form. Now, you have to remember there's CONCACAF Nations League, I think, before this, and then there's a Gold Cup after this. But you have to think all the emphasis is going to be going into this June 2021. You're concerned about your European-based players being absolutely exhausted at the end of, of a condensed campaign at the end of this. But just to kind of run through the group. So the A through F... A uh, playoff winner. The favorites in Group A would probably be El Salvador, and then in Group F would be Trinidad and Tobago. Not to go back there again, um, but then and then uh, Group B. So then then you'll play the playoff winner between the winner of Group B and the winner of Group E. The favorites there would probably be Canada or Haiti slash Nicaragua. So those are winnable games. You have two of them at home, one against Jamaica and the other against the BE playoff winner. So I think the US can kind of put their fans at ease a little bit by doing well early on in this qualifying tournament.
0: It's certainly possible. And I think we're going to find out how this new young generation in their early twenties for the U S and late teens is going to perform in games that truly matter because yes, I think getting six points from those two June games at home should be expected. Now, Going to Honduras, I've been down there before with that U.S. team. Very rarely have they come away with three points. It's happened. It's it's rare. And then if the first game is at Trinidad, I mean, obviously there will be a storyline there. If I were Trinidad, I would host in Cuba, the same town where they, they kept the U.S. from advancing to the World Cup last time.
1: Just run it on the video board for on, on an endless loop for two hours before the match.
0: <laughs> but... Yeah, I mean, like you would like to think there's twelve points on the table in those four games that are gettable, but I I I feel like I've been through qualifying too many times to know that that's actually going to happen. But yeah, you could certainly, like that's you're not having to play any of your big rivals in that first four game stretch. You're not having to play Mexico or Costa Rica, and that's not a bad thing.
1: And the thing towards the end of the schedule, you look towards 2022. You get close to the World Cup at Mexico on Match Day 12, at Costa Rica on Match Day 14. So you don't want to leave it late. You don't want to go into the, right. you know, last day of matches needing a result from other games because you're at Costa Rica. We've I mean, the U.S. has been hammered in their last two trips there. So... You definitely don't want to leave leave it to the point of needing points at the Azteca. You want to get this job done early. You face playoff winners uh, in two matches at home, which are games that theoretically should be winnable. You only have home Costa Rica and home Mexico. So even your two biggest games are at home, so it's a bit more winnable. I definitely think that the U.S. should probably have this job. If, if they kind of return to the strength, which we have no evidence that they're going to return to the strength that they had pre-2016, really. And so if they're in that kind of level, they should have this job done I want to say quickly, but in a quick pace so that you're not stressing over these last two and three match days.
0: Yeah, the two hardest games are always going to be away to Mexico, away to Costa Rica. Those were the first two games of the Hex last time. That's what got Jurgen Klinsmann fired. It's the opposite this time. I don't think the U.S. should have any excuses whatsoever this time around. Greg Berhalter should be thanking this draw that we'll see what happens when it actually gets going. But it's nice to at least have out there now some details on the landscape so that we can visualize these games and think about them again. The U.S. has barely played in forever, it seems like, since the Gold Cup.
1: Do you want to fantasy book the uh, the home venues? so. Yeah. <laughs> So, whole Mexico, where would you do it? So, so it's match day seven, October 2021, usually that second week. They're whole Mexico and at Jamaica. So, where would you have whole Mexico?
0: I mean, I'm a Kansas City homer, but I thought Kansas City has gotten kind of screwed the last, at least in, in the last cycle, in terms mm-hmm. of not getting games. So, I'd like to see that game in Kansas City. If not there, Minneapolis. You know, if the stadium gets down in Columbus, maybe. I just feel like the, the mojo is gone there.
1: So I I always think of this. We look at, at Mexico and see where the U.S. are before that. I can almost guarantee you, well, the thing is that it's in January. So you're home with Honduras before going to Mexico. You kind of want to play in some elevation before you go right. to Mexico, but you can't play a home match against Honduras in Colorado in January. That would be a disaster. Why not? Unless you want to have another slow Clasico with Honduras.
0: <laughs> I, I would love a January 22 game in Denver. Because March, uh, the Snow Classico was in March, as I recall, right before the Mexico game. Why not? Why the heck not? And we can get Hondurans as upset with the U.S. as as Costa Rica still is about the Snow Classico. I,
1: I, I love the Snow Classico. I, I will watch anytime the YouTube algorithm, and it knows me well, recommends the Snow Classico YouTube highlights. I watch them every time.
0: But in terms of other ones, like... You know, we'll see how they approach this. I, you know, i i like I like it when good soccer cities are rewarded with home games, and so like I liked when Seattle got a home game, even if they had to put grass in. Uh, I thought that was a really good atmosphere. But you know, they like to go to Jacksonville and Nashville and places like that. I I would like to see Minnesota get rewarded for, for building a stadium that from everything I've seen is pretty sweet.
1: No question. And there's a few that are coming in Cincinnati is, is being built as well. We've mentioned Columbus already, but there's a ton of venues. I mean, Maybe by then Miami will actually have been started on a stadium. I think Miami can sort of become the home of Concacaf. They already are from a logistical standpoint, but uh, there are so many Central American nationalities that have huge bases here in Miami. So I say here because that's where I'm based. I definitely think that, that it's a place that U.S. soccer should come for sure more often. But yeah, I mean, because I'll, I'll give MLS huge credit for this—the infrastructure that they built. As a matter of fact, like it's too small of a stadium, but I'd kind of like to see a city like Louisville get a big Hmm. game because they spent a ton of money on building a 15,000-seater stadium for their USL championship team. Like, I'd love to see maybe they get rewarded, maybe not a full national team game, but I imagine the women's team will go there more often, but I think that's another cool venue that should have some love as well. So, I mean, there's just so many places in this country that you
0: can go. Yeah, the list just keeps growing as the sport gets bigger here. Let's talk about U.S. women's national team players on the move from NWSL to teams in Europe, particularly England, because you've already seen now Rose Lavelle and Sam Mewis sign with Manchester City. Now, Dan Laletta, longtime women's soccer writer, puts out a tweet saying Kristen Press and Tobin Heath may well be moving to Manchester United, Mm. which has finally got a first division women's team. It took, took them long enough, but they've got that. And the reasoning for this is clear, right? Because it's really hard for NWSL to have much of a season. They're going to play some games in pods, it sounds like, but not many. And they've done a better job with the virus in Europe. And so the opportunity to play more games is there for NWSL players. What are your thoughts on the potential move to Man United of two of the best U.S. national team players after two of their other best U.S. national team players have already signed across town.
1: Well, I already have just kind of been operating under the assumption that the minute... That Europe starts to take this seriously and offer wages on the level that Lyon do. I mean, And they did a great feature on them on the CBS pregame show about just how seriously they take women's football at Lyon. And in some ways, this is a really easy move for them because it is so much cheaper to run the highest quality women's team in Europe than it is to buy a good center forward for your team. Like, like the amount, the money differential is massive. And so, it just made sense for these big clubs to start going after some of the best women's players in the world. And the minute that they do, I don't want to say I fear for the NWSL because the college game produces a ton of talent and there are players that maybe aren't good enough for the national team, but are still great women's players. I actually think that if there was a USA 2 national team, they would make the quarterfinals of, of the Women's World Cup. Like If there was just a second team of women of eligible women's national team players that they could do well too. So there's a ton of depth in this country, but you just do wonder, unless the unless the NWSL sp- steps up their game from an economic standpoint, they're going to get left behind in some respects because of the money that's on offer. The one thing, though, that it, it's not necessarily a huge downside, part of it is is the nature of the season, but already there are a lot of NWSL players that play in Australia because of the condensed nature of the schedule. They go and play in Australia because there's kind of a perfect marriage between the calendars. So I don't think it's that big of a deal from that standpoint, but... If Europe starts to come in and wants to spend real money, which, by the way, to me, it's important that the NWSL get transfer fees for their national team players, however it is you figure out the contracts, but ultimately, you have to imagine that these national team players are more going to take opportunities to play in Europe, because I imagine there's a lot of money to be made there.
0: Yeah, I think it's also really important for the NWSL to at least be able to say that they're either the best league in the world or right at the top, along with other leagues. And to do that, you've got to be able to hold on to most of the U.S. women's national team players. I feel that. And and so I think that's going to be a challenge moving forward. We're seeing continued expansion in the NWSL. So there is investment coming in. L.A. was announced already. We saw a report from The Athletic on Wednesday from Paul Tenorio Meg Linehan that Sacramento is going to be online for next season. There's other possibilities for expansion in the NWSL. And that's great to see, but that investment has to come with making sure that you've still got the talent. So I think that's going to be their challenge, but at least it's good that things are moving in the right direction investment-wise in the NWSL, even during the time of a pandemic when the economy isn't great. And I'm looking forward. I signed up for the WSL free player online where you can watch games from England that are now going to have far more American players involved, it looks like. so
1: The onus is, and I'd be curious to get someone like Merritt Paulson's thoughts because he's got the most successful NWSL teams as things stand, can you be competitive on an economic basis with the biggest clubs that are coming in for transfer fees when, again, I, I don't know how much Manchester City is paying Rose Lavelle and Sam Mewis, but I imagine it's The smallest of fractions of the transfer of Ferran Torres, a winger who they will eventually bring into their first team, but probably not at the beginning. Like it is such a drop in the bucket in comparison to what running a men's team is that they should, if they cared even a little, have the best women's teams in the world. I do wonder if the NWSL kind of recognizes this moment as, all right. It's time for us to step up our game and be competitive and pay these players, not just in conjunction with U.S. soccer and kind of marrying the two salaries together. No, NWSL needs to be competitive with how they're paying players at the highest level.
0: One last thing I would add on this topic is I remember when I visited Carly Lloyd when she was at Manchester City, and you know I think in relative terms, compared to the rest of women's soccer, they were paying her pretty well. But in addition to just getting paid— she's a gym rat and she was like just in love with the facilities at man city compared to what she had experienced in the NWSL because they made everything available facility wise to their women's players that they do to their men's players as they should. And she was like basically spending hours and hours and hours there. And then she was living in the apartment complex that Pep Guardiola lived in. And so like, she like, Pep would get in the elevator with her and they got to know each other. Like, it sounded pretty great, especially if you're a hardcore soccer person like Carly Lloyd.
1: Yeah, and you wonder how Sam Ewis and Rose Lavelle will, will take to the experience and if yeah. Tobin Heath and Kristen Press decide to go. I imagine... Living in football-crazy cities has got to be kind of a cool thing for them. And yeah. look, the the women's Super League attendance has grown as England... Look, England doing well in the last two World Cups, and Europe just in general having a renaissance with the game. Let's give credit to clubs like Atletico Madrid and Juventus as well for, for adding and developing their women's football teams. But it just makes sense that these big clubs and being ingrained in that culture will actually help because it was funny because that news today comes on the heels of the new England national team manager Serena Wiegmann, who comes over from the Dutch national team, was saying that she thinks that the U.S. women's national team are beatable. And so I do think that the U.S. women's national team kind of just has to step it up a little bit. And I kind of wonder if playing in the European club game is a step towards that.
0: One last thing I wanted to talk about, MLS games are getting back going again in home venues. A few select markets are actually allowing some fans. Dallas did that in their games against Nashville. Uh, Kansas City is going to do that uh, with a few fans allowed for their home games. And in uh, Orlando, as we saw on Wednesday, is going to allow some fans at its game. The only point I would make here, Chris, is that the MLS cities that have done the best in flattening the curve, and, and beating the virus, or at least coming close to beating the virus, are not allowing any fans still. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking about where I am here in New York. I'm talking about Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, where Canada has obviously done better than the U.S. has. And none of those places are allowing fans for these games, even though we could. I mean, like, it would make more sense here in New York if we allowed some fans because like there's very few cases here right now. Like we worked our butts off to, to flatten the curve. Obviously, it was really bad for a while, but it's not that way anymore. But it's fascinating to me that the places that have done poorly, especially recently with the virus, places that are still hot spots, Orlando, Dallas, especially, are allowing fans And I don't get it, man, except if you just want to have an example one, this is why these cities are not doing well with the virus.
1: Because ultimately, they take their advice from local governments. And if if their local governments are allowing this, then maybe the lack of taking it seriously is why they've had the issue to begin with. So as you said, it ultimately doesn't grapple with the reality of the virus. And I think that's been the country's biggest issue, is that at no point—and look, I live in South Florida, as I mentioned, and— when Miami had a positivity rate of 20, 21% and we're getting crushed by this thing, you would still go out and see people in cramped indoor areas and living their life as if everything was normal. And I think being a New Yorker yourself, you've seen what it's like when an entire community grapples with the virus. And I just don't think that some of these cities haven't really. And so in some respects, the clubs are taking the the cues from their communities. And you've heard a lot of conversation in the pandemic about how sports can be a reflection of the country, right? So if the country has the virus well handled, then sports can continue. As we've seen, I was watching a Borussia Dortmund game the other day where they had a full crowd in the stadium. And that's because in Austria, they've had it sorted out well. So I do think that ultimately these clubs are gonna make money if they're allowed to. And if their governments are allowing them to, then that's what's happening. And I just think that it really comes down to poor governance more than anything else.
0: In MLS owners' have the choice of, of how they want to approach this. And most have made the right choice. A few, Dallas, Orlando, Kansas City, I think are really disappointing right now. And and I wish MLS, I understand why they want to stage games. I get that. But stage the games without fans for now and make a league-wide decision. This sort of market by market thing just doesn't seem smart to me. Doesn't seem like it's even beneficial to the markets where they're doing this. But uh, in any case, that is it for this section of the podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Now, here's my interview with Micah Richards. Our guest now is Micah Richards. He's doing studio work for CBS All Access's coverage of the UEFA Champions League, which has its final on Sunday. Richard's had a 14-year pro career as a right back in which he won the Premier League with Manchester City and played 13 times for England. Micah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. How you doing? Doing okay. It's, it's been fun watching you from, from New York here. I mean, congratulations on, on all your work with CBS. Um, you know, you're working mostly with, with Roberta Martinez, Jamie Carragher, Kate Abdo, it seems like you guys have found good chemistry very quickly. And, and I'm wondering, how does that process work?
2: <laughs> you know what? It's crazy because I've worked to Carriga before, um, never worked with Kate, never worked with Roberto. So it's been, I won't say difficult. The whole thing was thrown to- together last minute. You know what I mean? Uh, and we was like, oh, do you want to work for CBS? I was like, hell yeah, I want to work for CBS. Why, why? Why not? But I think one of my strengths... on on the camera, is to make people feel comfortable. You know, I'm always laughing and joking. I can give good analysis and stuff like that, but at the end of the day, it's entertainment. People want to be entertained. So um, I try to be the guy, try to make everyone feel feel welcome. Um, But yeah, the guys to work with uh, are brilliant. I know Kate uh, works in American TV and she's mainly boxing, but how she knows so much about football and keeping us all in check. Because you know what we're like on camera. We don't, we don't show up. We could talk about football all day. So she keeps us in line. She's been really good.
0: <laughs> so you've been doing studio work in England for Sky and the BBC, among other places. Is there anything that's different when you're doing this for an American television audience as opposed to an English audience? <laughs> well, first of all, they call
2: it soccer. Oh, we don't we don't call it soccer oh, we don't call it soccer over here. So that's the first. Um, over over in, with CBS, we do a lot of pre-records. So we're actually on screen for a lot longer than people think. and to be able to keep the energy going for a longer uh, period of time is quite challenging, but I love it. and I, lo- I love the fact that I'm getting loads of texts and um stuff from on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, people being complimentary so it, it it feels like you're doing a good job you know what I mean it, I think um, over in England people can be a, quite snobby in like the, the thing that Americans don't know as much about football soccer as you call it as they do but there's some die hard fans in, in in America so when we're talking about tactics and stuff like that it's good that um, we're able to give that information because they're, they're aligned with, with, with over in Europe now and I think You know, football, soccer in America is is getting big, especially when you see um, players coming through in America. We talk about um, Pulisic. He's the one who can really take American football to the next level. When you've got a superstar like that, as long as he stays fit and healthy, I believe he's the one to do that.
0: You can call it football, by the way. We're fine
2: with that. Don't, don't worry. <laughs> I don't want yeah, to get, get in trouble for calling it football.
0: <laughs> so you are a very young man still. You're just 32 years old. Uh, I know you had to end your playing career earlier than maybe expected due to injuries. How difficult was that? And how did you go about your transition into media work? You know what? It was difficult because I actually didn't want to come into media
2: work. I know it it sounds ridiculous, but so I started, I started young. um, I use a phrase over here that I I said, "bursting onto the scene. Everyone, Everyone says like, I came onto the scene so young and then everything was going so right for me. I was playing for England. Um, one of the youngest ever captains for, for Manchester City. And then the latter part of my career didn't go to plan. I got relegated with Aston Villa. Um, I had loads of abuse online because I'd had, my, I'd had like six operations on my, on my right knee. And the fans didn't really know the full story why I wasn't playing. They thought I was just taking my money and didn't really care. Um, so the transition into media, I didn't actually really want to do because... I was time I was borderline depressed. I didn't I didn't want nothing to do with it. But then I thought, actually, I've got a voice where I've, I've done well. And um, I've been at the the other end of the spectrum where I've not done so well. So if I can help anyone in how they're feeling with ups and downs of football, I thought, let, let, let me try this punditry. And then I started on BBC first. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. And I've only been doing it, what, well, since August last year, Um Probably a year and I loved every minute of it. I really I really have.
0: So from what I've seen, you've been someone who can get a rare smile or even laugh out of the fearsome Roy Keane when you guys work together on a studio show. And like to the point where like people think you guys should star like in a buddy cop movie or something now. Like, does it take guts to have a laugh when you're on a show with Roy Keane?
2: You know what it is? Like, I always tell people with Roy Keane. He's a legend of the game. Look, I had a very good career, but he's a legend. It's different level. So when I go on camera, I can't compete with what he's won trophy-wise, but what I can do is do my research and be witty and come out with something that's going to make him feel a little bit uncomfortable because if he for trophy, he's, he's going to win. But, he, you know, I always try and make people who um, are, are that well-known in the game. How can I get the best out of me and of them on set as well. So I always put him under, you know, instead of trying to argue with him, I just be nice to him. I I kill him with kindness. And he, he doesn't actually know how to deal with it. Like you can see when he's speaking to me, like anyone else is on where we might be uh, two or three other people. Like, he's actually raging, but because I'm so nice to him, he doesn't know how to handle it, and I'll keep doing it until... Because he, he he knows now he can't be nasty to me because we've got that uh the, the partnership on screen, but, yeah, he, he is great to, to work with. I, and why I like working with him is just he's so blunt and honest, and it's refreshing that he doesn't sugarcoat anything. Everything is just, well, this is what I think, and this is how it goes. And my other... I, I try be the other way. Well, actually, well, if you looked at it from this angle and yeah, it just, on, on camera, it seemed to come across really well.
0: The red mist does not descend when you're with Roy Keane on, on Roy. <laughs> I'm very impressed by by that. Um, now, you have done a lot of work and you talked about this a little bit on, on CBS. You've done a lot of work in football anti-racism campaigns over there. And, you know, personally, I thought it was really striking that, the Black Lives Matter protests after George Floyd's murder really did seem to resonate in Europe and in England and with the players of the Premier League. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, why do you think that happened?
2: I think the the video was disturbing. And I think a lot of people knew it, it went on. But until you actually see physical evidence and, like, there's been times where there's been videos in the past and people think, oh, he must have done something ridiculously bad for that to happen to him. You know what I mean? People think, like, well, that just doesn't happen. But when when they're seeing someone kneeling on someone's neck for, for, for eight minutes, eight, nearly nine minutes, it's like, wow. Like, it really made people stand up and realise there's a problem. And um, there's so many, I think... What's happened now is there's so many black players um, in in the Premier League now, where beforehand there was maybe scared to to talk about it because they didn't know if their career would be affected by speaking out. But because now so many people have come together, not just black people, white people as well, and said this is this is this is not good enough anymore. It's not it's not good enough just to say it's not 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 right. Let's take some action um so when people seen them disturbing images it was like well no times need to change um and there's been a lot i've got a lot of white friends who who don't really know how to act because they don't want to come out and and say the the wrong thing but now i think they think actually no i've got to say something even if i say the wrong thing um and genuinely um your feelings are correct towards the situation then no one's going to no, no one's gonna challenge you for that. No one's gonna be angry with you for for trying to understand what's going on and what we talk about, like white privileges. And people didn't understand exactly what that was. It's just like if I go, I, I had a story um, when where I live, and when I walked past a white a white woman in in the uh, in the street, she automatically would cross the road or clutch the bags. And my friends have seen that for years, but they never thought nothing of it. But now. What's happened is just I actually think, well, there's, there's so many different cases that go on um, and people are starting to realize now. So um, obviously the, what happened with George Floyd was, was disgusting, but it's helped open people's eyes to, to help for the future.
0: Are you optimistic that we are going to see real change here um, and that and we've talked about this here that like it's going to require white people to, to really get it? and and talk about it and deal with some uncomfortable stuff and this is a conversation we're having obviously in the US I assume that's happening over there are you op- are you optimistic this time
2: yeah it's it, it's hard it ha- it's hard isn't it because um you have to be optimistic but at the same time you've got to be realistic as well um there's, there's still people um if you go on twitter if you go on instagram who who are actually in denial and, and try pretend like it's it's not happening. There was an incident on on, on a bus the other day I, I seen where it showed uh, three black guys that, that, that punched a, um, um, a white guy on, on a tram and people are only posting the black guys punching the white guy. They're not showing the the clip before where he was racially abusing him for a minute, you know what I mean? So it's... We've got to be careful that we we, don't, we go, don't go full circle where it becomes a black person, person versus white person thing. It may really, subtly, we've got to explain and show people things, what is going on, because otherwise, then there's going to be a, a race war, and then you, you're going away from exactly what, what you're supposed to be doing. I think that's a problem. So I am optimistic, and why I'm optimistic is because there's more white people um, talking up about it, but ultimately it's gonna to have to come from white people just because um black people didn't create racism, so they can't be the ones to, to fix it. You know, it's got to be the, the the top people in the top organizations. Um and it's difficult because every time I'm on 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 screen I wanna do something like I shouldn't have to be talking about racial issues because I'm I'm talking about football. But now it's involved in the game so much it's every other month I have to talk about it, you know what I mean? So I think it can be a positive, but I think sometimes too much information can go the other way. So it's just subtly bringing it in and make trying to make people understand.
0: No, that makes sense, and I appreciate your candor on that. Um, making a transition here. Uh, there are a, a couple specific things from your playing career that I want to ask you about. When you won the Premier League with Man City in 2012, you were there on the craziest final day of the season ever when City got two goals and added time against QPR to snatch the title from Man United. So three years ago on the fifth anniversary of that day, I wrote an oral history of that day and I interviewed Vincent Company and Aguero and a bunch of people from City about their memories of that day. Unfortunately, I didn't interview you. What specifically... <laughs> What specifically do you remember about the wildest day in Premier League history?
2: You know what the the wildest day in, in Premier League history was 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 crazy for me because I was on the bench, you know what I mean? Um and that season I'd played the majority of the season. So I was like I was feeling sorry for myself if I was being totally honest, you know, because you work so hard, I pulled my hamstring 5 games before and then Zabaleta played the the rest of that season. Um and I before when the game was starting and he's just like, if there was one game you want to play in your career, this is a game. And when you're not playing, you know it's team sport, of course it's team sport, but at the end of the day, you want to be playing in the, in the, in the big games. But because Mancini was a little bit uh, superstitious, he didn't change his team. Um, and then Zabaleta scores the first goal, doesn't he? So the guy in my position scores. So you imagine how I'm feeling on the bench right now. Like I'm not playing, but the guy in position scores the goal the first goal. And then QPR equalise, And then the score again. So all at this time, all my personal feelings have gone out the window. I was like, well, we're a team now. You know what I mean? I don't care how we win. We just got to make sure we win. Uh, and then Dzeko scored to make it 2-2. And this time, like, I don't know if you, you, you follow City so much, but no matter City's history... They always oh, yeah. do things the hard way. I don't. I don't know why. It's like it like some curse that we've got or whatever. But when we went to two two, I spoke to Balotelli. He was warming up on there on the side of the pitch, and he was just like, "Don't worry, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna win. Uh, I'm gonna come on and change this game." If it was a two one or two two, uh, and it's the only assist he's got for Manchester City, the goal that Aguero <laughs> scored, and I was just like some some moments are just made for for big characters and, and big players and aguero you know words can't describe what a player he is he's just absolutely incredible and it was, it was just a surreal moment like and it meant so much more to me because i'd been at man city since i was 14 so like great players come and go you know different teams but because i've been there from the from the start people don't understand what it it's like the best feeling ever it's like all that you've worked hard for in your life has just come complete together and it was just incredible moment. All the fans were coming on the pitch and it was just... There will be, never be a, a moment like that ever again in, in, in Premier League history. To score in the 90, 93rd minute, it's just just—it's incredible. Absolutely incredible.
0: Yeah, uh, I remember that day like it was yesterday. Um... I, and I, I feel like I have the obligation to ask you if you have any good Mario Balotelli stories to share because you have to, right? <laughs> well, Mario, Mario's like uh, my little brother.
2: I love him. One of the nicest guys ever. But, you know, you mentioned the... Uh, you must have heard about the fireworks story, no? That he, he, set his, he set his house on fire. What people don't understand, he came to my house and was chasing me around... My house with fireworks. I'm like, you've just burned down your house. Why on God's earth do you think it's acceptable to come to my house, chase me around my it was my kitchen at the time with fireworks? What's going through your head? And he just, he was just he just one of them people who he just he just didn't have no boundaries. He just loved banter. He loved, but he was he had a soft side as well. He did a lot for charity. I remember another story where. The police stopped to be Manchester. I think he had like twenty thousand cash on him or something like that. And the police were just asking him, "Why have you got so much money?" And he just said, "Because, because I'm rich." And then he did give like I think it was five grand. He was telling me to, to the homeless person. Do you know what I mean? So for as lot of, a lot of bad stories as he
0: is, there's a lot of good stories as well. I actually did a story on Mario uh, back in 2013 when he was with Milan, and part of our interview was just me telling. Him stories I had read about him in the tabloids and saying, is this true or not? <laughs> and he actually had fun with it. And, and the fireworks story came up and he was like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You can't let him lie. <laughs>
2: yeah, he's he, he's he is a character, but he's... Sometimes the media portrayed him something that it wasn't not like... Yeah, he could have worked harder. Yeah, but you've always got that one character in the dressing room, and he was it. Absolutely incredible. It really, it really was.
0: couple more questions here with Micah Richards. Really appreciate you taking the time on this. Um, when you're working on Champions League like you are now, obviously not all the teams are English. There aren't any English teams left at this point. How do you go about trying to make sure that you're up to speed on teams from the continent that you might not watch as much as you do the teams in England?
2: Yeah, that's a a very good question, to be honest, because it's difficult. And being honest, that's why I didn't do Europa League, because I feel like there's better people equipped. I think Pete Radovich put a a great team together in such a short space of time to be able to give CBS the the coverage they need um, and without just getting big names who can talk about football. I think... Um, we've had some real, real different. It would have been nice to get um, some Americans as well on there, but because everything was such, you know, a short space of time, don't think it really h- had time to do that. But yeah, in terms of Champions League, and if you want to be a pundit, you, you should pretty much know the the, the the best the best teams. You know, it's, it's the champions of of each country, so you should know. I think where it helps though as well, Roberto Martinez. He is on. He's like a, a whiz kid with with teams. He's got a system where he can watch any game um, around the world. He just types in the game and he can see. it. So when he, when we're doing tactics and stuff like that, he's he's really the man. And obviously, he's a manager, so um, he looks at way more the, the tactical side of things. But in terms of not watching not watching the games, it, it is difficult because. Over here in England, the Premier League is is the, the, the biggest league. We we don't really show the, the, the Spanish league. The La Liga got, got taken off a couple of challenge, uh, cha, um, channels over here as well. So you have to do your homework.
0: But when it's Champions League, you, you pretty much know the players anyway. Nah, I hear you. Uh, you will always be connected to Manchester City, obviously. The Champions League is kind of City's holy grail under Pep Guardiola. And this year seemed like a, a missed opportunity again. I, what do you think City needs to do differently to win this trophy?
2: It was so it was so difficult with 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 Man City, to be honest. Just because if there was going to be one year to to win it, you'd think that the, the chances of them winning it, especially because it in in Portugal, it was just it was just one game as well. Um, I think when Pep came, came to, to Manchester City, what he's done over the last couple of seasons, you know, he got 100 points in the Premier League and the way he's changed football from youth level right the way to the top, you would think in, in the Lyon game, he would persist with, you know, his style of play. I think it may be brought too much into uh, to the Lyon side a little bit rather than how good... Manchester City could be and I think um, I don't want to say what I made a mistake because that's why he's the, the genius is if he if he goes and win the game everyone's saying it he, is a genius but I just I just believe like he's done so much in in in, in the past and it's worked it, it's, it's strange how he changed it for that game going forward I just I just believe Man City do need a, another centre back I think that's why he changes his, his, his tactics because he wasn't comfortable with what he had back there, and just just keep doing what they're doing. I, I think a lot of people are quick to, to scrutinise, um, but you've got to give Leon credit. They played an unbelievable. You know, Man City I think had seventy percent possession in that game, and Leon hit them on the, on the counter attack. Can you can you really say that was a bad game? No, it, it goes back to bad defending or not being ready for for the counter attack. So going forward, I think they keep need to keep investing in the squad, keep believing in his philosophy, and it it, it will come. It's not it's not an easy competition to win. And a lot of people think if you if you spend money,
0: you you'll win, but it's not as easy as that as, as we've all seen. Michael Richards is doing studio work for CBS All Accesses coverage of the UEFA Champions League, which has its final on Sunday. Micah, congratulations on everything you're doing. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
2: No, thank you. I appreciate the shout. Um, I really enjoyed, enjoyed the, uh, the the American audience as well. Long may it continue as well. i like to come out of there, do a few shows. Um, yeah, get on that, that Hollywood stage. <laughs> come
0: on over to New York. We will welcome you. <laughs>
2: uh, New York's my place, though. The Dream Hotel, that's my place. That's my place. Awesome.
0: Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Micah Richards as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of The Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to help get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe everyone, see you next time.